is Friday, Friday morning, January 15th, which means it's time for us to gather around to hear from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, specifically his first letter to the Corinthians. And we're looking today, we started last week looking at 1 Corinthians 15, sort of the first part, which was all about the resurrection, really, of Christ and making the case for it, because apparently there was some in their midst that were denying such a thing, that were saying that, no, 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 resurrection isn't real, and frankly, uh, we don't need it anyway. And Paul began to make his case saying, no, 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 we saw Christ, We there's a bunch of us that did, 500 of us, in fact, at one time. Um, you can go ask them, and if this thing legitimately happened, and then he goes on to, to detail, like, it's a real problem if there's no resurrection after all, too. I mean, uh, these people apparently are pushing some form of Christianity that says it's not that big a deal, that says it's not that necessary, and Paul says, actually, no, if there's no resurrection, then your life is a meaningless void full of nothingness. <laughs> I'm overstating it a little bit, but not too much. He really does get uh, that negative about it. And so today, he's going to continue making his argument by showing the really the logic of resurrection, how it makes sense in the broader sort of biblical narrative, biblical story. I'll begin at verse 20. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So already you see the logic here. We know, according to Christian theology, according to, frankly, Jewish theology, uh, that we've always believed that ever since Adam's fall into sin, Adam and Eve's fall into sin, that human beings have been subject to death and decay and all of the entropy laws of the universe that were not there before that happened. All died as a result of one man's sin. So too, all can be made alive as the result of one man's righteousness, that being the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul makes a very similar case, a very similar argument in his letter to the Romans, of course, as well, especially in chapter 5. So he continues, for each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the, to, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, Paul uses lots of words there, but really what he's saying, like his big idea is Christ is going to win the victory. And then he's going to say to his father, I've accomplished everything that you set, out to, set me out to do. I've done it. And then they will reign together on his throne. And those who have believed in him will reign with him alive forever and ever. That's really the logic of resurrection. Just as in Adam all die, all together in unity to Christ as they believe in Christ, as they are baptized into Christ, are in fact guaranteed to live. Excuse me while I take a very, very important sip of coffee. I promise I'll try not to slurp. 
I did it. No slurping, but it was tempting. And now we come to, admittedly, verse 29, a very odd verse. And I'll, I'll try and explain it, but it is a stumper. There's no doubt about it. You could read 15 different scholars' commentaries on this uh, set of verses next, and you might get, you know, 13 and a half different perspectives on it. It's just one of those things. It's a very rare uh, passage in Scripture that seems to be on its own. There's a few of those passages. Paul writes this, still making his case for the logic of resurrection. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now let's stop there. What is this baptism for the dead he speaks of? And for that matter, are people actually being baptized on the behalf of people who have died? Well, there's two possible ways of understanding what he says here. The one is to believe that in the early church, in fact, there was such a practice, that there was people that were getting baptized on behalf of their deceased friends and relatives in the hopes that them getting baptized would sort of retroactively get their deceased friend or relative into heaven. It's, it's possible that something like that was happening, the problem with believing something like that was happening, even though that's certainly what the text suggests here, is uh, we just don't really have any record of that in the early church. We don't have any historical record of that of ever becoming uh, an official practice. Really, up until the Church of the Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormonism, uh, there was no such thing. Mormons do, in fact, get baptized on behalf of dead people. Um, but they're kind of the only ones. Uh, the Christian church has never had such a practice, as far as we know. So that leads to the second option. The second option could be that this is just a sort of awkward way of Paul saying, in fact, when you are baptized, you are baptized on behalf of the dead, and the dead being yourself. Uh, the dead being your sins. This would fit, if, if we understand it, and we see this as sort of a clunky way of saying that, this would fit with the language that we see uh, used to talk about baptism uh, in Romans 6. We die with Christ in our baptism. We're raised with Christ in our baptism. But whatever point of view you take here, here's the big idea. Paul is still using the logic of things that they're doing to say, you do this, therefore it makes sense that there is in fact a resurrection. You believe that this baptism is going to lead to life. Why else would you be baptized is basically Paul's big idea here. He goes on, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And of course, Paul is being uh, slightly hyperbolic here. He's obviously wouldn't be writing this letter to them if he was literally dying. But his point is, is that he's, his life is on the line every day. His life is on the line and frankly on their behalf. His argument is, if there was no resurrection, why would I risk life and limb every day of my life on behalf of the church. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, verse 32, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Again, Paul goes back to this sort of like, hey man, uh, nothing's really worth risking your life for if there's no resurrection. Nothing's really worth putting your all into if there's no resurrection. If there's no hope beyond this life, 
The point of this life is, in fact, what the hedonists said it was. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. That's it. It's just about sensory experiences in the moment. Do whatever you can to enjoy and get as much pleasure out of life right now, no matter what the consequences, because it's not going to matter anyway. Paul says, no, no, that's not what we confess. Because of the resurrection, we're willing to go out there. We're willing to work hard. I'm willing to put my life on the line. I'm willing to go up against beasts at Ephesus. So that's the logic of the resurrection. Do not be deceived, verse 33. Bad company ruins good morals. My goodness gracious, have you ever heard of a verse that is used more often that is taken completely and utterly out of context more than this quote? Bad company ruins good morals. Folks, this is not a statement discouraging you from hanging out with people that, you know, are bad company or immoral. If this was the case, then the church would never be able to witness to anyone. The church would never be able to actually befriend anyone because to some extent, everybody can be considered bad company because everybody is sinners. That is not what he is talking about here. No, specifically, in this, in this whole chapter, he's defending the doctrine of the resurrection. What's the bad company that is ruining good morals for them? It's the company that's denying the resurrection. And that's corrupting them. That's corrupting their church. That's the idea. It is not, we don't hang out with those who smoke and drink and those, you know, we, it's not that thing. It's not those old rhymes from, you know, very uptight people. No, that's not what this is about. This is about making sure our doctrine's right on the hope of resurrection found in Christ. So he says this, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Folks, this happens all the time. Their doctrine has gone askew. Their belief in the resurrection has gone askew. It's been, it's been uh, all of a sudden sort of, they've gone on a detour that they weren't meant to go on. And what does that result in? Bad doctrine ends up resulting in bad behavior. And that's what happened in the Corinthian church. Because, they were, because some of them were losing hope in the very idea of resurrection, they said, well, might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That, that's what Paul is really counteracting here. He says, no, no, you need to believe in this because it's causing all of you to swerve into the wrong lane. Let's continue. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory, which, by the way, is actually true. Uh, they are all different. They are all unique. Paul is saying they're both going to be bodies. Your body right now is a body. And what you're going to have when you get risen, when you are risen from the dead, is going to be a body too. That's true. But it's going to be a different kind of body. 
The, the closest example we have, of course, or the most clear example we have of what this body will be like is really seen in the person of Christ after he's risen, right? Suddenly he seems to be able to go through walls, yet he still eats. Uh, suddenly he seems to appear out of the blue, yet he still touches and still is tangible. I mean, in his risen body, remember, he has the scars to prove that he, in fact, was raised from the dead. Uh, Thomas's experience coming before the Lord and placing his fingers in the scars shows us that there's something very familiar about the body we're going to have, and yet something that is very, very different, something that is outside of this dimension, outside of space and time, that we can't quite understand yet. We're not sure how this all is going to work, but we do know it's going to be different. So Paul says, verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That indeed is a quote from Genesis 2. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who's the last Adam? Well, Christ ultimately is the fulfillment of the second Adam, and that second Adam gives us new life. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first uh, man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Well, that really is the case. That's the logic for of the resurrection. That's the way this all pans out. Just as people all died because of one man's sin in Adam, so all are going to be made alive in Christ. For those who believe in him, they will be given the gift of immortality. They will be given a new body that is no longer subject to the decay and all the things that we are now. Paul says this is our great hope. This is what we look forward to. This is what spurs us on to be willing to sacrifice and to work hard and to do the th and to see life actually having meaning and significance rather than just a series of pleasurable activities for us to pass our time before we die. No, no. What you do today and what you do every day because there is a future home for you, matters. Everything you do today matters. It's significant. You might be in the midst of doing something right now that feels precisely the opposite. We all have it. We all have those moments where it feels like doldrums, maybe more so than ever in 2020 and into 2021, at least so far. Nevertheless, don't lose hope. It really does matter because everything you're doing is preparing you for a true and better eternal home that Christ has won for you by his death and resurrection. All right, that's enough of me.